going on, everybody? We have a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Trent Dilfer. Uh, just going to let you know, let you guys know uh, who he is in case you don't know. As uh, pro bowler, Super Bowl champion, a husband, father, and head coach of the Lip- Lipscomb Mustangs. How you doing, Trent? I'm doing good. Thank you for the nice introduction. Oh, no problem. Listen, thank you. Like I said, thank you for being here today. Uh, my co-host couldn't be here today, uh, but he still wanted to go ahead and, you know, get the interview done. Uh, like I said, we, we appreciate you taking time out your busy schedule. Uh, you know, I understand how difficult it is trying to run a football program and with all the responsibilities that come with it. So, like I said, I appreciate you for your time. No, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, my first question for you, uh, you were, you know, like I said, you were a top six pick, a pro bowler, Super Bowl champion. Uh, what was your favorite accomplishment while playing in the NFL? That's a great question. I, you know, I think most people would think it was winning the Super Bowl at the Ravens, but I actually probably take a little more pride or am proud of the accomplishments we had in Tampa. You know, when I got there in 94 as a sixth pick of the draft, we were the worst franchise in football. Um, not just from a personnel standpoint, but the coaches were on their last legs. Um, front office was disorganized ownership was trying to sell the team um there was no nobody was coming to the games if we played the bears at home in the big sombrero there would be forty thousand bears fans and fifteen thousand bucks fans um so you know the 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 road team usually had a better fan base than us so there was a lot it was downtrodden and John Lynch and Warren Sapp and Warwick Dunn and Mike Allstott and Rondé Barber and um, a bunch of guys, Paul Gruber, uh, Quez Green, Riddell Anthony. I mean, these were the guys that got us back uh, to relevancy in 96. And then in 97, we went to the playoffs. We won a playoff game. We barely lost to the Packers up in Green Bay in the divisional round. We had nine guys go to the Pro Bowl. Like it, it, we had really turned it around. And that journey is probably what I'm most proud of because the lows were so low. I mean, I tell people all the time, I was literally the worst football player in the NFL my second year in the NFL, the worst. And the scrutiny that came with that, um, you know, the identity crisis that came with it uh, was brutal. And then to have a group of guys kind of help pull you out of it uh, and then accomplish some pretty cool stuff is, is something I'll always remember. And I'm still really close to those guys. Uh, we, we joke about some of those times and uh, are really proud as the group of what accomplished. You know, you mentioned some of the guys, uh, you know, Derek Brooks, Rondé Barber, Mike Allstott, uh, John Lynch, Warren Sapp. You also played with Ray Lewis and Shannon Sharp. How was it yep. playing with those guys who were all considered all-time greats? How was it playing with those guys? Well, I've gone back to my career a couple of times. When I was at ESPN, I always said, you know, I was never great. But I've been fortunate enough to be around greatness. Um, future Hall of Fame coaches or existing Hall of Fame coaches. Uh, uh, I think 10 Hall of Famers right now I played with, and that number is going to go up. Um so I've really studied great and had a, a, a chance to be around it. And, you know, you, again, you can't forget the Brooks and the Allstots and the Lynches and Saps, but then you get to Baltimore and I'm immediately with, I think four hall of famers, Ray, Shannon, Ben Coates, Rod Woodson. Uh, oh, Jonathan Ogden five. So, 
you know, as that group had some great years. Uh, we had our 20 year anniversary Zoom uh, Super Bowl reunion the other night, and it was really neat to kind of re- to reflect back on that team and how many great players were on it. And then you go to the coaches, your Rex Ryan's, your Marvin Lewis's, uh, Brian Bilk, obviously the head coach, Matt Cavanaugh, um, Jack Del Rio, like incredible coaches. So, um, really lucky friends to this day I think Ray and Rod and Shannon have probably done more for my post career than anybody because they've uh, been advocates of the type of player and leader and person I was Um, they've stood on their soapbox and said you know great things about me publicly so uh, I'm indebted to them both as, you know, what great players they were. It's the only reason we were able to win a Super Bowl. I was surrounded by such great guys. And and then 20 years after, how we've really supported each other. I know that there had to be, you know, there had to be a wonderful experience. And obviously something, you know, obviously me, like a, young, a lot of young men, have a dream of playing in the NFL someday. But well, it was at some point you had a dream. And to, to be able to actually do it and to – play at the highest level, win at the highest level and play with some of the best, you know, of all time. I know it has to be like, you know, I, I know it has to be something special. I know it feels special for you. And it, you know, I, I take a lot from my career, uh, lessons learned, good and bad. Um, I, I think I've been really fortunate though. I've had people outside of my football life that have always encouraged me not to let my identity be wrapped up in what I did um, or what I'm doing, but more in who I am. I think that's important for a lot of ex-athletes that we're very lucky and you have to be appreciative of, of the blessings we as athletes. It it creates generational wealth for your family. Um, The impact you can have in your communities is, is awesome. Um, Obviously the gratification of reaching your dreams, but it ends and it ends abruptly and you got to make sure that it's prepared you for something bigger than what you did. And, and uh, I've had really good mentors that have helped me with that perspective. And it's why I'm where I'm at today. You know, I, I take probably as much action, if not more, in getting a, you know, 15-year-old um, to help chase his high school dream. Um, but to him, that's an incredible accomplishment to his family. Uh, and, and there's a lot of rewards in, in seeing that kid through his high school journey. And uh, I know you mentioned, you know, uh, you learned a lot of lessons and, you know, how did though, you know, now that I want to get into coaching a little bit, uh, how did those lessons, you know, help you uh, become the coach that you are right now? I think number one perspective, uh, you know, if there's anything that, a guy that's been around a lot of football, the advantage that person has, um, and the quarterbacks, I think, have a unique perspective. I'm not going to say better or worse, but unique. Um, You've seen a lot of stuff. You've seen things that work. um, You've been around fake coaching. You've been around guys that could talk coach but not teach. You've been around great stuff. You've been around some of the greatest minds and greatest teachers football has to offer. Um, you have experimental, experiential data, meaning like there's scar tissue. So, you know, Ooh, that would hurt me as a player that didn't resonate with me as a player. So I don't want to replicate that. You have things that, 
connected with you as a player uh, and you want to maximize those things. You want to amplify those messages. So I think perspective is a huge thing. Um, I, I, you know, again, I don't relate very well to a 17, 16 year old boy right now. I'm 48. Um, I've raised three daughters. Um, so there's times where I'm learning from them and I have to tap into my friends now that have teenage boys. John Lynch is a great example. I called John a times my first year. He had a son um, that was, had just finished his high school experience. And, you know, he had just raised a boy and launched him into college who was a football player and was able to tap into that relationship and be like, hey, I don't understand what's going through the mind of a 16, 17-year-old boy right now. Uh, help me better understand it. And I think having all this, you know, call it a big giant stew, right? You just, you're making stew. And I think the meat of that stew is your experience and your perspective. And then you lean into that to find with your community to help you find that whatever makes that stew up. Um, I spent a decade, you know, uh, leading the Elite 11. And I think I learned a lot about high school uh, grassroots coaching. Uh, I think I learned learned some about kids and uh, everything that I needed to know. Uh, but you take all that stuff and I think it's prepared me for what I'm doing now. And, and I'm growing. I, I tell my staff, I tell the kids every year, I take a month when the season's over and do self-reflection and self-growth and uh, I probably learned as much. I know you spoke about the Elite 11, which uh, kind of led right into my next question. Uh, you know, I, a lot of us watch, a lot of sports fans, uh, I love, me personally, I love the Elite 11. I used to watch it all the time. Uh, how did that, you know, help you in your transition to being a head coach at the high school level? Well, that was big. Um, it was already a really good camp, right? So I always say that, we didn't build the Elite 11. The Elite 11 was an established camp. It was a really neat brand, had great leadership. Um, it was birthed by uh, wise gray hairs that have been around the high school space forever. Uh, what Really what we did was breathe life and energy into it and kind of take it, and we timed it up perfectly with kind of the social media explosion um, the explosion of high school where we went in there and we just kind of added some gravitas to it. We had a uh, higher level of uh, sophistication. And then really the, the secret sauce to Elite 11 was the amount of coaches around the country that, we be that became core staff members. So uh, my right-hand man, a guy named Joey Roberts, who has as much influence in the high school space as anybody he, uh, him and I kind of went on this quest to go identify young, vibrant coaches around the country and empower them to not just grow their businesses, but to impact wins. And by doing so, you ended up with the Kevin O'Connells, the Charlie Fries, the Quincy Avery's, Jordan Palmer's, Justin Hoover's, Paul Troth, Adam Tafralis, Gerard Johnson. Um, I'm Sione Tafua, like guys that now are crushing um, the football space. Charlie's the quarterbacks coach, of the Dolphins, Gerard's with the Colts. 
Um, Jordan Palmer is probably the premier quarterback whisperer in the country. George Whitfield, um, you know, I can go on and on and on. And, and these guys have taken the core values of what we established in the Elite 11 and been able to spread them throughout the country. And by doing that, obviously the quarterback space is better. There's more kids being impacted in a positive way. There's um, uh, the brand has grown um, because the TV product is better. The documentaries are, are really cool. Um, and you're seeing, you know, authentic, genuine people that care about kids and the development of kids taking over. And, and I'd be remiss to say none of this happens without the leadership of a guy named Brian Stump, who's the president of student sports out in California. Like he was really the visionary behind hi hiring me, him and Andy Bark, the owner, um, allowed me a long leash because there was some disruptive times the first three years, much like here at Lipscomb Academy, where we pretty much turned the thing upside down and disrupted the way of doing things. And you got to have the trust of your leaders. And, and uh, Brian's an incredible leader, a great partner. Uh, and again, a guy that's seen more high school athletes probably than anybody in the country over the last 20 years, evaluated more of them, been around them um, to this day. Uh, him and Yogi Roth and Joey probably get more phone calls from uh, quarterbacks and other athletes around the country that are, you know, having challenges in their journey. And they look back to us as a support system. And, you know, you know, yeah, I, I, me, I like me or many others, you know, you've put together, you've put together a successful program uh, in just two seasons. You've been to the playoffs twice uh, of a 29 record and you, you know, this past season, you were in the state championship game and only lost by seven. Uh, how have you been able to build such a successful program in, in such a short time? <laughs> Takes everybody. You know, the first time I ever met with this community, I, I, I said, I'm going to say this, and you're going to nod your heads, but you're not really going to understand what I mean. For where we're going, it's going to take everybody. And that's from administration. Uh, we're attached to a university, so it was going to take the university support. Uh, parents, obviously, grandparents, siblings, uh, support staff within the academy, uh, obviously the coaches, the players to buy in. Um, but, you know, we, we say around here, the way you do small things is the way you do all things. And everybody had to jump on board to do in their life with more excellence. And... You know, really what we sold, you know, and if you chase and pursue your God-given potential, the overflow of excellence that's going to come with that is going to seep into every area of your life. So it wasn't just about building a good football program. It's about building better academics. You know, my two years here, we've crushed the team GPA records that were here before, um, esteemed awards for our team GPA. I think we had 17 kids with over four .0s and 80 kids with over 3.0s um you know we said it would pour over in their social lives that all of a sudden their 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 uh, groups would be different they would look different they would sound different uh we're seeing an impact there uh it would help their family life uh, they'd be better brothers and they'd be better brothers to their sisters to their brothers uh, they'd be better kids to their parents seen that we've had a lot of parents come and say it's amazing how much my boys changed and how much better he is um to have from home um, we've had our boys write uh, parent affirmation letters where they pour into their parents and say how much they appreciate their parents. You do all this stuff. We call it, you know, a human development program as a high school football team. As they grow as humans, 
uh, as they start giving more of themselves to better the world they're living in, the football stuff is naturally. Uh, you're, there's obviously going to be a better product that overflows on the, into Friday nights uh, when they're doing everything else, pursuing excellence. So we take the football very serious. There's absolutely a high level of sophistication to how we develop them as football players, as athletes, um, but it's secondary to their life development. Um, this evening, I'm meeting with a player that's a senior um, that's going through some confusion in life, just with the direction where he wants to go now. Um, he knows that he can come to us. You know, he's met with a couple of coaches already. He's going to meet with me tonight. He knows that we want to be mentors and help him along that journey. We've dealt with all kinds of social issues on our team, emotional issues with players, um, identity issues, you name it. Um, we feel like if we pour into them uh, as a coaching staff that they're going to have a better contribution to the world they live in. And obviously they're going to play better football. Um, and uh, we don't make any bones about it. We're trying to win every game we play. <laughs> it hurts like heck that we lost the last game of the season. I don't like that you gave our career record and there's nine else in there. I don't want to lose nine times. <laughs> so uh, we want to win football games, but we know that that is a byproduct of pursuing something bigger in life. And I know you mentioned, like you said, you know, when you pour into the players and they point to their parents, you know, it's, it's a whole community is, is putting in to build a successful program. And I think that's something that a lot of high school coaches uh, don't really, under, don't really, you know, understand. I know high school I come from, you know, I come from a small city. I'm not sure you're not familiar with Brownsville, Tennessee. Uh, but from there, I feel like, you know, the athletics is just athletics. It's not really, I don't feel like it's a community. I don't feel like it's a program. It's just, you know, football team here, basketball team. And I, and I think that's where, you know, a lot of high school coaches, you know, could could improve is trying to build a, a community versus just a football, just a football or basketball factory. And there's challenges, you know, I'm, I'm well aware there's going to be a public school coach that hears this and says, Hey, that's a pie in the sky idea. You don't know what I'm dealing with, with the administration the challenge of getting kids to practice and, buying equipment and all the challenges that we all have as coaches, but especially in, in the public school setting, um, it doesn't have to be like this. It, it's the connection you make with your players. Uh, it's the connection you make with your coaches. It's pouring into coaches. I think I probably spent as much time um, and personal energy into relationships with coaches because I know if that relationship's better then their interaction with their players is going to be better so um not everything has to be big and glamorous and have four million impressions on social media and, and and you know flash and sizzle and great uniforms and all that to change a kid's life i was the son of a public school coach i grew up on the back of a blocking sled i brought water to the boys he had the same equipment for 20 years my stepdad had a massive influence on a lot of young people so uh, I think our job as high school coaches, first and foremost, is to connect with our coaches and players and, and pour into them and um, make their high school journey uh, better than it would have been if we weren't there. You know, and you, you talked about, you know, in a previous question, you talked about improvement. Uh, so, you know, looking forward to this upcoming season, how can the team, uh, the Lipscomb Academy program, how can it improve going forward on the field and off the field? Well, it starts with me. I have to be a better coach. 
uh, again, uh, took a month after the season, reflected on a lot of things, and I'll take as much responsibility for the three losses as um, especially the last one. Um, I think our coaching staff will do the same thing. They'll hear it from me. You know, I'll be very honest with them on the things they need to get better at. Uh, and then our kids, you know, we have to continue to get better in every area. I, I think it starts with physicality. Uh, if you're to point to one thing that CPA was able to beat us with is they were more physical than us. Uh, they finished better. Um, they broke more tackles. Uh, they tackled better. Um, it's not a scheme thing. It's not a effort thing. Our guys played with great effort. Uh, it was just, they were more physical. So this will be our first year. We have a full year with our strength coach, Luke Richardson, who in my opinion, isn't just the best in, in football. He might be the best in the world. I mean, he's consulted with, you know, Olympic teams around the world, around the globe. Um, he has a really good plan for our kids development. Obviously COVID interrupted his ability to spend the year with them. So hopefully they get a whole year with him. And I think we'll see gains there. I think there's a mindset to physicality um, that our boys need to embrace a little bit more. Um, and, and then details. Like if you look at little tiny things, little coaching points that uh, our staff was able to pour into the kids getting ready for that game or throughout the year that didn't quite show up uh, when we needed them to show up. So those details will get better and we're, and we'll be older. You know, we started four freshmen last year. Um, we'll probably start a couple this year. Uh, I tell the kids all the time, I don't see age. Um, I see productivity. <laughs> so um, the most productive kids will play. Uh, and we have some young kids that uh, are new to our program that will be fantastic players. Uh, but we have a lot of competition, a lot of positions. Um, they've all heard it from me as we launched into our off season program that, we got to get bigger and stronger and faster and smarter. Attention to the details. No, <clears throat> like I said, you mentioned details, and I kind of want to move conversation forward a little bit. And you know, with the Los Angeles Rams and the Detroit Lions, you know, Sean McVay is one of those coaches that you know. If it seems to me, it seems like from the outside looking in, obviously, you know, I'm not connected in the NFL, but. It's like he pays attention to the details. And, you know, just last week, as an organization, they decided to make a move and traded for Matthew Stafford, got rid of Jared Goff, uh, and a couple first-round picks, a third-round pick. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what are your thoughts on that trade? And uh, who do you believe initially, you know, got the better end of the, of the stick? Well, I, these are hard. You, we won't know, obviously, until they start playing. <laughs> I think on paper, Stafford brings uh, more movement qualities, move, movement assets at the quarterback position. Um, he's going to play in a cluttered environment under chaos, probably a little more effectively than Jared did. Um, and then the experience of him playing for so long, having pelts on the wall, being around a lot of coaches, I think he'll challenge uh, Sean McVay and Kevin O'Connell, the, the offensive coaches there, um, with some thought process and with some scheme things. Um, so I think it's good uh, on paper for them. And I think it's good for Jared Goff. He's obviously going somewhere where he's probably a little more appreciated um, that values things he can do and doesn't just see the things he doesn't do well yet. Uh, he understands what rebuilding looks like. You know, when he went to Cal, they were one in 10. He quickly got them uh, to bowl games. So he understands what that process looks like. 
I think it's a good fit with Anthony Lynn as offensive coordinator, Dan Campbell, the head coach. They're going to be more of a pound you play action team. I think that fits him really well. Um, but ultimately, who wins in all of this? If you're talking about on this podcast, and I've done, I think, three others this week and multiple radio and TV shows, Park Avenue's winning. The NFL's winning <laughs> because they're talking about quarterbacks. Uh, and they'll continue to talk about quarterbacks after the Super Bowl because they're going to start talking about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and Wilson from BYU and Trey Lance from North Dakota State and there was some Shane Bouchelle and Brady White and all these other kids that one day will be our NFL quarterback. And what they're not going to be talking about is the NBA or hockey or baseball or anything else. It's going to be at football and the NFL and quarterbacks. So there's strategy to this too. And the, one of the strategies is the more quarterback movement that happens, the more conversation around quarterback movement, where's Tua going to do, where's Cousins going to be, where's Darnold going to be, what's going to happen to Sean Watson. Like these aren't going away. And the, the big winner in all of it is Park Avenue. And like that, that goes perfectly with my next question. You mentioned Deshaun Watson, who, you know, the trade talks have dominated the headlines and rightfully so uh, led the league in passing last year. Uh, I would argue is a top five quarterback in this league, top five, top six. Yep. Uh, but with, with that being said, what team do you feel like best, best fits his skill set? You know, I don't. I haven't talked to Deshaun about what he's looking for. Um, his skill set fits anything. You know, there's there's quarterbacks that are transcendent of schemes. Uh, Deshaun is one of those. Um, for as rough as his ride's been in Houston, he's also had some good stuff happen to him in Houston, and that was he was demanded to learn a kind of graduate level way of playing the position, protection schemes, run game, situational football. Um, that some quarterbacks never get exposed to because they don't have the sophistication of coaching. So he has that. Um, I, I think, and again, I don't want to say a team because I don't know what he's doing. Obviously, talented players around him and, and lots of them. It's not just having the one stud receiver. It's having – uh, think of the think of the Golden State Warriors when they were rolling. You have Steph, right? He's one of the best players, if not the best player in the NBA. Um, but then you had Thompson and and Draymond Green and other role players that, uh, given space, were very effective. Um, obviously, when Kevin Durant was there, so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for an offensive personnel group that can create space. The more space they create the more effective you're going to be as the quarterback. So I think he's looking at it that way. I think, you know, he'll be very uh, judicious in how he evaluates everything. Um, and wherever he goes, he'll be successful. If he goes to the right place, he has a chance to be uberly successful. And, you know, I was listening to your response and you mentioned, you know, he's one of those guys that transcends the scheme. And, you know, coming up Sunday, we have, you know, arguably the greatest quarterback of all time and one of the most talented guy, quarterbacks of all time who both transcend their scheme. So from an X's and O's standpoint, uh, when it comes to the Kansas City Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, what are some weaknesses uh, that the opposing coaches, coaching staffs can exploit uh, this coming up Sunday? Um, I'll keep it simple. I think for Kansas City, they have to find a way. I think you'll see Tyreek Hill – 
move around even more than he usually does. Uh, they definitely have a speed matchup outside. Um, Tampa's corners are physical guys. Um, I wouldn't say they're, you know, well, nobody can match Tyreek Hill's speed. That's true. <laughs> uh, he definitely has a, a speed advantage on the perimeter. I think Tampa will try to double him a lot when he's inside. Uh, those are very hard doubles to uh, maintain with motion and shifts. So I think you'll see him moving a lot. I, as if you're looking for one thing, if your eyeballs is going to catch one thing when Kansas City is on offense, it would be where's Tyreek Hill? Like the where's Waldo games? Like find Tyreek Hill, and, and if he's not getting the ball, he's probably doing something that's activating new defenders so somebody else can get the ball. Uh, I think Patrick Mahomes is probably going to be forced to play under duress a lot more than he normally does. Um, he'll make his plays. Obviously, we know he's a magician doing that. I really am looking for does he make me mistakes doing it. Um, usually, if you're forced to play 15, 20 plays under duress, there's going to be two to three catastrophic mistakes, fumbles, interceptions, uh, just bad decisions. Uh, if he can limit those to none or one, He's under duress. He's throwing the ball away, or he might take a three-yard sack, or he might scramble for two yards. Uh, those are plays that don't show up in the box score um, because it just says minus one or plus two or incomplete. But it made us may have saved them a mistake that flips the game and gives the ball back to Brady. So I'd say that's Chiefs' offense. Um, Bucks' offense. I think they're going to take some shots. Um, they always do, but I think it could even be even more this game. But to do so, they got to establish a running game. Uh, you know, it's it's very hard to take shots against the Spags defense if you're not running the football. Uh, if they can run the football, force an extra player, Tyron Matthew, uh, somebody else around the line of scrimmage, um, then they have some distinct matchups. I think Scotty Miller's really interesting uh, to look at. He's maybe the second fastest person in the NFL. He says he's the fastest, but um, I think you can, you can get him open because they got to spend so much time with Evans, uh, even the tight ends, Gronk and Bray. Um, obviously if Antonio Brown plays again, he, he demands some attention and you can't account for everybody. And Scotty Miller is going to be a guy that is probably going to be on the third or fourth best secondary player uh, for the chiefs. And it wouldn't surprise me if he gets three to five big play opportunities. Uh, my buddy sent me a note the other and said sleeper MVP pick for uh, the for the Super Bowl, Scotty Miller, sixty six to one odds. So it might be worth laying down a dollar on that one. <laughs> you know, you you mentioned you know things that they could attack. You know, taking shots downfield. You know, Patrick Mahomes is gonna have to play under the risk. Uh, so, you know, with that being said, who who do you have winning the Super Bowl? Or have you made your decision yet on who, who are you going to go with? You know, I, not working in TV, I don't have to. <laughs> I don't have to pick somebody. But our coaches, you know, we all have down there the whiteboard pick. I'm one of the outliers. I have the Chiefs. Um, I think here's why I picked the Chiefs. I think the Chiefs can play bad and still win. Uh, and my experience with football, it's not how high your ceiling is, it's how high your floor is. Um, and obviously we know if the Chiefs are going in all cylinders that they're probably unbeatable. You know, they don't have Fisher. They don't have Swartz. They had some early COVID issues this week. Who knows what's going to happen over the next few days. I think the Chiefs are the team that can have a lot of bad stuff happen to them and not execute at the highest level 
uh, and still beat you. And that's why I chose them. I chose them as well. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, they can play bad and still win. Because if you remember last year's Super Bowl, uh, Patrick Mahomes didn't look too great the first three quarters of that game, but he made a few plays late. And the team made a few plays late, and they were able to get the W. I think we talk more about our floor than we do our ceiling. So, you know, if you want to have a great program, you got to make sure that your bad is better than other people's good. And uh, I think the Chiefs have proven they can do that. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm I'm very excited. Uh, if Tom if Tom Brady wins again, you know, if the, if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get their first one, Tom Brady wins again. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Peyton Mahomes gets his second. I still wouldn't be surprised. That's, I think this may be, in my lifetime, it's probably the most excited I've been for a Super Bowl in terms of the quarterback matchups. And, you know, I think we're in for a great one, definitely. I agree. I think this is, uh, you know, it's very, people, you know, people forget history so quick, but when Brady and Wilson played, um, I kind of had feeling like I was as excited about that matchup as I'd ever been for a Super Bowl because Brady is already the GOAT. It's not like he wasn't the GOAT then. Uh, so we're having the exact same conversations about Brady now as we did for that Super Bowl. And then Russell had established himself as the young um, freak show quarterback. Like he just did stuff that nobody else was doing, and and it was hard to comprehend. So, you know, I don't think everybody's is this the greatest matchup of all time. Well, it's – it's the one that's now. <laughs> so we want to say it's the greatest, but man, there's been some pretty good ones. And I, I'd point back to that Brady Wilson one is one very similar to this. Well, listen, Trent, <clears throat> that, those are pretty much all the questions I had for you today. I do want to say I appreciate you for taking time out your busy schedule and uh, giving, giving the show some great content. I do have a question for you. Yep. Okay, so do you know anybody that, you know, would be a, a great guest on the show? And if so, can you connect me with them? <laughs> um, there's a lot of great guests in Middle Tennessee. Um, uh, I don't know how, how much I could help you, but uh, let's talk offline and, and we'll try to get you some help. Okay. All right. I appreciate you. Uh, like I said, my co-host couldn't be here today. Uh, he's, you know, he was a little disappointed about it, but you know, he was excited that, you know, you took your time out. And we're, we're grateful. We're, you know, extremely grateful for, like I said, for taking time out your, your busy schedule. And I really appreciate you. Uh, this is the first and foremost sports yeah, podcast. I, good luck. I appreciate you. Uh, this is the first. Good and luck with your future guests. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You have a good one, Trent. All right. See it. Bye. Well, uh, there it is. Trent Dill for interview. This is the first and foremost sports podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Covington, and I'm out.